tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Garrett Light, founder of the 13-year-old Venice Beach-based eyewear brand, Garrett Light California Optical. It's a mouthful. (laughs) Garrett grew up around eyewear with his father launching Oliver Pupils in 1987. I wanted to ask him what his brand is doing differently in the market and to what extent celeb fans like Elton John have benefited the business. Welcome, Garrett. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. I feel like I am intimidated because while doing a little research for this podcast, I came to realize you have your own podcast. Tell me about that. Um. People have been asking me for years to do that, and um, I don't know if it's. It seems like everybody has a podcast now, but um, nobody really had a voice in the eyewear industry um, in terms of podcasting. Um, so we have a pretty sizable audience from all over the world, and um, I, I mean, like my eyewear audience that we've built over fourteen years. So we figured, you know, why not bring on some industry veterans and friends from the fashion industry or athletes that I might know from Los Angeles, whatever it might be, um, and just talk a little bit about their careers, who they are, what they believe in, and you know, maybe a little bit about eyewear and how they go about selecting their glasses. So uh, that started this year. Um, we've had maybe 10 episodes, so no real cadence to it yet. It's kind of hard doing a full-time job and that, I mean, you might know, uh, as well. So we kind of just launch them when we can and, um, you know, hopefully get 12 to 15 a year. I mean, so fun. You've got a good cadence compared to (laughs) some others I've been researching. Um, really good. So these people are representative of your customer, of what your brand stands for. Well, tell us about your brand. There's, it's an interesting, the eyewear market is so interesting to me. I know there are the giants. Luxottica is like very dominant in terms of, I guess, well, various brands under the umbrella, but, um, then emerging direct-to-consumer players. I tell you what, I always think of your brand because I think I first discovered it. You've got a store in Austin, yeah? Yep, on South Congress. South Congress. I listened to a podcast called Retail Therapy and the host, (laughs) I want to hear from you if you think it's a luxury brand. I think it's a luxury brand, but they talked about like shopping around and basically they know that they can always find something amazing at your store, but they're like, wanted to be cheap about it or cheaper or like save some cash. And they're like, I was just waiting. I went there last. They were the last stop because I wanted to find something before I got there. And I got there and damn it, I found the perfect pair. I just sucked it up and did it because it it was so perfect. But yeah, tell me about that. Is that kind of like, is that representative of your placement in the market? Like, it's higher end. It's worth the money because of the quality or, or tell me, tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, luxury is, uh, we've always tried to understand if we sit more luxury or I guess contemporary just because of based on price point. Um, I think that it's certainly just coming from the background that I have, um, uh, growing up in the family of Oliver Peoples, like it certainly meets all the requirements, um, uh, in terms of the, you know, quality and the materials we use and the type of customers that we sell to. We certainly sell to plenty of stores that carry luxury product. Um, but recently I went to a trade show and heard that we're sort of like the entry level price point now. They dropped a lot of brands, anything below us, um, just because people want to sell things at a higher price, I guess. Um, so, 
you know, I think we sit at the lower end of the luxury uh, price point. And then in terms of, you know, branding, um, you know, I started this when I was 26. So we've always had a very youthful um, perspective and approach. Um, at the time, you know, I was kind of just running around Southern California um, with my friends. I mean, not just, I mean, I was working, but I mean, like on the weekends, we would, you know, go to Ojai or hop in a, in a van and go camping or, you know, go to the beach. So that was really like shot a lot of the imagery for the brand um, in that sort of uh, perspective. Uh, I don't want to say that's not luxury, but it, it was more just like young and youthful. Um, and at the time, you know, our prices, you know, our product entry level was probably 40% less, but that was 15 years ago. So a combination of inflation as well as just like using, you know, materials uh, that were more expensive, increasing our cost of goods kind of raised it. So, um, you know, if the question is, are we a luxury brand? Um, I would say, I mean, I would I would probably prefer to say that we're not. I, I think we're kind of like I think that we're more attainable than some of those things, but you get the same quality of product, you know. I think um some of the sort of like design houses or household names from Chanel, Prada, Gucci, like those are luxury brands. Their glasses are two hundred dollars and they're more mass produced two hundred dollars more than ours and they're more mass produced. They probably don't use the same quality. So I mean it's I just think the brand is more, um, you know, the demographic is more a little, excuse, a little younger than people that shop luxury. You know, I want to be a little bit more approachable than I feel a luxury brand is. Well, I stumbled over the name of the brand because I wanted to ask why you chose to get the California word in there. Because to me, it seems a little bit more maybe casual or you said young. I don't, I don't know but that California, the state of California says young, but like to me that it's kind of a casual vibe, but yes, as opposed to Garrett Light, Gal- Garrett Light, California Optical. Yeah. Uh, I think casual is a better word than young. I mean, California to me is youthful, but maybe not young, um, casual, um, for sure laid back. And, um, these are just, I'm such a California and I grew up here and I love it here. And it was such a huge part of my DNA that I wanted to incorporate it into, um, the brand. I thought, um, I, it just was so much about the message that we were trying to share at the time that it seemed like it needed to be included in the brand name. Um, uh, to an extent, you know, when you're designing like the logo, it's on my hat, like the acronym itself, the GLCO kind of looked visually better as well. Um, honestly, I think we added the O, like I think it was Garrett Lake, California at first, uh, but it kind of, you know, with the four letters across, it looked better. Um, so that all, that of course plays a role in it too. Um, but there was never not going to be a California in the brand name. And I, I'm super proud of, um, where I'm from and how it's defined my character. So, um, you know, and my, you know, my name's in the brand. So, uh, that was really the only thinking about it. I mean, I think we've had some ups and downs with it, like particularly like in Texas (laughs) at a specific time, you know, I think certain people are like California, get out of here. Um, 
I, you know, I mean, what are you supposed to do? You just got to navigate that. I'm not going to change the brand name because of that. Um, hopefully they would recognize that, you know, once visiting us, that it's great service and great product. And you want to keep coming back to visit your local optician who has a great sense of style and knows how to fit your prescription into your frame and pick a great frame for you and adjust your frame whenever you need it. And talk to you about new music or new restaurants or new, you know, design and architecture. Like that's what we've always tried to have in our retail spaces. So um, that's kind of the whole, you know, picture. Yeah, that's nice. How many stores do you have now? We have nine. Oh, wow. Yeah, and all in North America. Are they all uh, scattered? Is there a Southern theme happening? No, there's certainly a lot in New York and LA. Uh, there's three in New York, three in LA, one in San Francisco. So seven of nine are in California. Um, but then we, uh, oh, sorry, California, New York. And then uh, we have Austin and Toronto. Okay, fantastic. So I wouldn't say there's a Southern theme. I just loved Austin and felt like uh, it would be a good and fun risk to take maybe back in 2018 or 19 when we opened, I believe, 18. And um yeah, Good I wanted time. to get outside of the major cities, and um, Austin's just a cool, cool place. Good eye. I feel like you beat the rush to Austin. <laughs> um, tell me, and you mentioned that you were carried in some stores that would be, maybe be considered luxury. Uh, where else are you selling, and, and to what extent is it like wholesale versus direct-to-consumer? Are you focusing on the direct sales? Yeah, I mean, we sell to like Bergdorf Goodman, which of course is luxury. Uh, Mr. Porter ha- has, you know, a wide range, Essence, Dover Street, um, you know, these kind of stores. And then also just like you may have not heard of our optical shops that we sell to, but they carry, you know, designer luxury brands to even eyewear luxury brands that sit at the like a chrome hearts or something like that which is a $1,500 frame made in Japan that is certainly sits at the luxury end of the market um so um yeah from our opticians to our you know fashion doors um we're in a, many many stores who carry luxury brands um wholesale you know I, I would say my expertise is definitely in design and um wholesale like that's sort of what I learned and kind of came from that background. Obviously, all of our people's launched in a pre-internet uh, era. So, you know, no social media, no email. You know, they're faxing. <laughs> um, um, but um, really learned what I know at that company through my family and my dad. And that was probably, yeah, marketing design and traditional wholesale. Uh, but obviously we started in a different era and we uh, went online and we have sell our optical frames online and our sunglasses online and we have retail stores. Um, so we're about 65, 35 direct to consumer to wholesale. Um, and um, I would credit wholesale though a lot to sort of creating awareness globally to the brand um you know we have over 2000 wholesale accounts that have been really supportive since the very beginning so um we have them to thank for i think when tourists come to new york or la and they want to see the garrett light store it's probably them that educated them and gave them a good experience and sold them their first pair and many pairs but i think um, sometimes those people want to buy something from us. Sometimes they just want to experience the brand and they're loyal to their local optician or whatever. And we're good either way, as long as, um, you know, we're growing the business and the audience and servicing them. So, um, 
Yeah, I give a lot of credit to our wholesale. That was really how it all started. We launched in 2010, which, you know, our, I think probably was before the big like e-commerce boom. Um, Instagram kind of just started in 2010. Uh, and then from there, you know, Twitter and, you know, Twitter first, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where people really tried to monetize sort of the influencer and things like that didn't come till later. So we really did launch when things were still uh, pretty traditional, I guess the word would be. Yeah. What's your approach to selling eyewear online? Because it's such a, like, a lot of folks are doing try before you buy or like um, virtual try on and are all of those things available, accessible? Is it necessary? So yeah, it's it's definitely challenging. I think it's one of the, it has to be one of the more challenging products to sell online. Um uh, our return rate is pretty in line though with what we see from other categories, uh, maybe a little higher, which would, you know, I think would, I don't think we have set any goals to reduce it below the industry standard, especially given the category. Um, so certainly people will buy five frames and return four. They're not, I don't want to say they're not allowed to. We don't have a home try-on program, um, mostly for f- the fear of having to invest in all that inventory that essentially becomes like you have to throw it away. I, I I would never, you know, like before the internet, when someone would come into my store and wear a frame for a month and then say, Oh, I decided it doesn't look good on me. I, it was always tough. Cause my argument would be, was, well, like I'm going to throw this away because I would never sell this. You know, you, you can't return it now. It's been six weeks and you've been wearing it. Like I can't resell this to someone else. So I bring that up in the context of like, if you were to have a home try, that's essentially inventory that's just to be turned and never sold or do- or donated, right? If that's um, you know to you know eyes for the needy or some great cause, but um, yeah, we never did home try on. We did do virtual try on, and we're probably going to bring it back. Uh, a lot's just changed in sort of that space in terms of the quality. Uh, it was kind of funky when we tried it five years ago, and it seems pretty good now. Um, so we'll try to bring that back. We're launching a new website in January. Um, so just kind of like the house is built, but just need to put the furniture in. So kind of reshooting all of our content and um, hopefully going live with that at the top of the year. Um but uh, not adding prescription online and not adding home try-on at this time. Um, I would imagine those are huge um, keys to success for like a Warby Parker, um, but uh, still feel that, you know, prescription is a pretty sensitive topic and we like to get people into one of our stores or one of our wholesalers to kind of navigate that, but you can always like hit the help button or send us an email and we're happy to have a conversation about your prescription and what frames might look good in it. Um, but still believe that kind of those conversations are best had in the retail space, which I think if you study Warby Parker's business, they've really become a retail, you know, first kind of business. They, I can't remember the number, but something like 130 retail stores, you know, so, um, probably recognizing that they need to have and build that audience, you know, in physical space. Yes. Well, virtual try on in January. What what else is new about the website? Um, well, right now, nothing. It's it, We haven't rebuilt it. Uh, but yeah, uh, what's going to be new? Um, just a little bit more of getting my character into the uh, conversation. So like my perspective on why a certain frame was designed. So you might be able to click like an audio file and hear when a frame was designed and what inspired it. Um, 
it's funny because a lot of it isn't web design. A lot of it is more attention to the detail with product description and giving, you know, building out more explanation as to why you might um, want to buy a frame. Um, you know, really making sure that we're using the right words um, so that it sounds beautiful. You know, whether it's like a, you know, four base mineral glass polarized lens from Japan or Italy, you know, just kind of like making sure that that's all very clear. It can be a lot of information. I, you know, I, you really have to be in the market for the glass and trying to, you know, compare why you buy this one versus that one. But we just want to make sure that it's all there um, and giving people options um, from like audio to written um, and visual if that, if that's possible. I mean, of course, the static image, but like video if possible. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest change, um, and probably just general real estate to storytelling. So sort of the way that we laid it out so that you can really, cause the brand's changed over 10 years and we have, uh, we have what I would consider a luxury product in Mr. Light, which is a collaboration with me and my father made in Japan and limited quantities, kind of targeting a more affluent customer that wants something a little bit more exclusive and limited. Um, but it, it's, uh, so that that needs to be more part of the main real estate. So kind of redesigning for that too. Very cool. You were talking about maybe your your feature, talking about the the reason behind the frame or or what have you. But um, do the people like you're the name behind the brand? Are you the face of the brand? Do the people want to see you? Are you in demand? <laughs> I think so. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I certainly would say we built. Um, kind of the brand off of Venice beach and having a store on Abbott Kinney that I worked in every day. And, um, I'm definitely very good at, at selling, you know, like if you put me in a, in a retail store, I can spell, sell anything, especially if I really love it. So I was in that store every day. You had the coolest customers on Abbott Kinney, um, in Venice in LA traveling to the store to get a piece of the experience and they could, work with me to get fitted. And I think they probably left with that and kind of word of mouth marketing, which I still believe is the greatest and strongest asset for marketing. Um, so it definitely in the beginning was very much a part of it. Um, you know, so I, I think they do. I mean, hence the podcast. Um, if I'm just being honest now though, there's just so many, people on soapboxes and it's really hard to talk, understand what you're supposed to talk about and when, and when you're not supposed to talk about something. And, um, you know, I, it's the news cycle. And so I, so it's, it's less about, I, I think what social media used to be and for sure they would love to hear from me, but right now it's hard to know who and what people want to hear. So, um, I think I, hear that. I don't know. I haven't thought about it in that way. So I don't want to make a sentence that I don't agree with, but was going to say something along the lines that I, I sort of think the fashion sort of influencers opinion is got to be dying out a little bit or, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> we're so yeah. over it now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, it's uh, yeah. Like I said, I don't know if I agree with that, but I think, yeah, to an extent it's yeah. just different. Yeah. Right on. Well, you like you said, you can't really, you didn't say this in these words, like clone yourself to be the salesperson at every store. Um, tell me about what happens in store because I have, this was not you. <laughs> I have a bitter experience with <laughs> shopping in store for frames because, you know, 
I'm in fashion. I wanted something really statement and oversized, and I'm sure they were too big for my head, but I got talked out of them because your eyes are supposed to be in the center of your frame, and and they were just too large. And I'm just, and I, and I, every time I look at my new glasses, they're not new anymore, my glasses, I'm like, the other ones were so much cuter. Anyway, but there is education involved. Like, like you said, there's a lot of information. I'm sure you do need to educate to some extent everybody. Anyway, who's in store? Who's representing the brand? And, and what's the experience like? Yeah, I was really challenging. It's, it's such a part of your character. It sits right on your face. And the person shopping um, for it, you know, there's a lot of things that could affect why they feel something is right or wrong for them. Um, no disrespect to shoes or jewelry or any of those things. Um, but I think selling those things, um, it's just a little bit easier or safer. Whereas um, with eyewear, you just really have to consider and listen to the person when they come in. Um, should they be one of those people that seems that way? Like, of course, sometimes you just, people are like, you know, put me in whatever, or, you know, and I, I suppose they're easier. Um, but it is really hard to duplicate myself or our best uh, retail people, right? Because a huge part of it is like having not only self-awareness, but just like an understanding of like feeling that person out and their emotions and like where you can push and where you shouldn't and where you should inject your thinking and or include what they're thinking. Um, and however it sounds, I'm like, a, that's like, I'm just really good at that. You know, I just, <laughs> that's my, that's my gift. And we have a few people that have worked for us for a long time. Who's that is their gift as well. Um, it's never about me. Like, of course I would love to see somebody, uh, in a specific frame, but also I have biases too. When I'm really into a certain style, you know, I want to push it. So you can't, it's, it can't ever be about me first. You have to like, listen to them and let them kind of talk and then know where you can be like, okay, there's I, slowly, I got to get them into that frame that they want or, or quickly, you know, cause they seem like they're open, but they really don't. They like in that scenario, you know, you really wanted that. And I, I feel that I would have been able to, to kind of recognize that and try some other things, but I would have seen it in your face and your energy. And I probably would have put you just in the one that you wanted uh, and or sold you both. <laughs> um, probably. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, but it's challenging to find um, those people. And we're really lucky uh, where we get that, but we've had all kinds of people, you know, we, we've had, We've tried it all. We've had younger fashion kids who love a certain style and they try to put a sophisticated woman with a house in the Hamptons and a house in the city and a house in LA in some kind of crazy, you know, fashion sunglass. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, no, they're not here for that, you know, and, and you got to just, you, you know, you just, um, you just have to put your own personal taste second and you have to try to understand what the, person shopping wants. And, um, yeah, we try to train it as much, as much as possible, but it's not easy. We'll be right back after this quick break. Well, speaking of who's wearing your glasses, I mean, people who are known for their glasses, Elton John, like, let's talk about how the glasses are getting in their hands, what they're going for. Jeff Bezos, I think Christy Turlington, I think who else? Who are you excited to see in your glasses? I mean, Elton John is an eyewear icon, obviously. Um, 
You know, Elton John and my dad and all of her people, they did a collaboration. I, I like before collaborations, like if you look up, I think it was called like the EJ1 and EJ2. I don't know how many they did. Uh, oddly, not very Elton Johnny. Like they were pretty classic retro vintage kind of optical frames. Um, you know, not bedazzled or pink or, you know, all the different things that he wears. Um, so I don't know if he has our glasses just because of a long history of, he's just an eyewear lover. He probably has something from everyone. So, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you mentioned a few, I mean, I'm always just, I'm always just so grateful. And, and for 15 years, I can't believe that like every day, every single day, multiple pairs of my glasses are bought somewhere in the world. It's so insane still to this day to think about. But, um, I think that, um, uh, yeah, from celebrity. I mean, we've had Brad Pitt and Leonardo oh. DiCaprio and um, uh, so, so many. Lady Gaga. Um, yes, Jeff Bezos, which is incredible. Um, and then, I mean, but to that, you know, there's probably a bunch of just incredible engineers and, you know, producers and directors that I don't even know who have contributed to such incredible art and creative things that I probably deeply appreciate, whether it's costume design or sound design or acting, you know, I mean, I, I, yes, there's the ones that make the internet that, you know, drive the traffic. Uh, but I, I would be lying if I said I appreciated that or, or was more excited about that, uh, than I am just to know that, you know, some really creative and talented people that change my happiness level, uh, <laughs> love, love my brand. Uh, I mean, I, we did a party at Silver Lake, uh, for our new store opening and a very small actor from Wolf of Wall Street who I like just, he, he was very recognizable character and he came in and he's like, I have nine pairs of these. You know what I mean? Like he's not so cool. on the f cover of People Magazine by any means or whatever, but it's just like, that's kind of like where I feel like the word of mouth marketing is, you know, it's like, he's a great actor. He doesn't, has a bunch of, you know, good sized roles and in, in movies and it's just out there representing. So, um, yeah, I mean, Brad Pitt moves the needle for sure. I was um, going to ask that. Yes, Brad, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when, when he wore that, we sold so many of that frame. So certainly we ask our, um, you know, head of celebrity PR, try to get that as much as possible, but you never know. The truth is those people really just like the glasses, you know, uh, Brad, we didn't pay him. It was in a tray and he got dressed for con film festival and he just chose that one, you know? So it's a really a testament to the right design at the right time, the right fit and uh, having all the right people get it in the right place. And then they select it. So um, yeah, the Jeff Bezos thing was super cool. I know people, we sold a bunch of those as Halloween costumes and then they returned them. Um, <laughs> it was pretty funny. That happened like sometime around Halloween when he took that one photo that was looked all buff and he was running our frames. So. Oh my God. Perfect. Well, we ro rolled our eyes a bit about the fashion influencers, but like in terms of like who Brad Pitt's influencing, he's driving the needle, pushing the needle. But who else? Like who does it make sense to gift to, to um, get in front of in terms of the people with a following? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's what you're trying to achieve, you know? So I think next year, um, I think we've gotten to a point in our business where we need to educate some of the newer audience as to why Garrett Light is a good purchase. And the reality is 75% of our frames are 
five styles. So, you know, it's like Levi 501 or Vans Authentic Shoe, um, you know, and Chuck's, you know, Converse uh, Chuck, you know, shoe. So basically, I think that one of those strategies that you could look at would be to, you know, reach out to some fashion influencers um, to help educate that messaging of like, we're calling it forever classics and kind of drive that point home of, you know, why you might uh, want to try Garrett light. And if you do, which frames to get that are ultimately the safest that are, you know, timeless classics that you can keep forever. You can wear and, and they'll last you. And then you can put in a drawer and bring them out in 15 years and wear them again. Um, and, um, so, yeah, it just depends on what message you're going for. You know, if you're doing – when we did a collaboration with Ramoa, uh, you know, we made a film with um, – uh, gosh, only because I want to think about this. Uh, Dave David Franco, so James Franco's younger brother. Oh, cool. And he, he was the director. We kind of – his wife is Allison Brie. You know, we gave, you know, we engaged that audience more and they were very much like internal – like they were very much part of the process – um, and spoke to like a more Hollywood customer. Um, so that, you know, so that's kind of, and we gifted people like that, like travel influencers or travel editors, you know, of like more luxury magazines and things of that, you know, luxury publications, more like a town and country or something like that. Um, and so it just kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve, I guess. Yeah. Wait, is travel. I'm just telling my team. I keep getting pitched about things that are TSA friendly, <laughs> like beauty products. I mean, anyway, we're having a travel moment, folks. Um, but tell me what else is working for marketing um, influencers. Where are you investing in marketing? What channels are working? TV, Instagram. I have a hunch Instagram, but you tell me. Yeah, Instagram for sure. Facebook as well. Um, we just moved on to a new digital marketing agency that I'm really excited about. Um, they they also just produce beautiful content. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Instagram is definitely our main source of digital advertising. Um, obviously, like search engine optimization and things of that nature as well, and Google AdWords and Google Shopping. Even um, those are probably the biggest sources. Um, it always, I mean. <laughs> Like a GQ feature, I mean, those things always help too and drive traffic. Maybe not as much as they used to because there's so much competition, uh, but we certainly still are invested in, in our PR department and we have an agency that uh, is out there, you know, speaking with editors and keeping us in the conversation. Um, so those are definitely some areas that we are invested in to kind of keep our e-commerce business going. I, I feel like it's a lot about just the storytelling and the content itself. So, you know, having uh, an impactful story that truly educates the audience on who you are and what you stand for and why someone would shop it and taking them on a journey from like that storytelling to the final piece of like, you know, the thing that's the most converted or clicked on is like the Yelp review or the white background with like eight product shots. But the truth is you already got them there to the point of clicking because of the movie that you made or the photo that you took of the cool frame and that's, you know, very like a highlighted product shot type of thing. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's where you advertise, but it's definitely also ha like a lot how. Um, I don't think you can 
be successful doing it with just one piece of, of the puzzle. You, you really need, you need the review, you need the white background product shot, you need the lifestyle movie, you need the, the, you know, I don't know what to call it. We have a name for it. Elevated product shot where it's like, you can't see the whole frame maybe, but the way that it's lit and there's just like detail images, like you need it all. Like, for sure. You mentioned GQ. Are most of your customers men? I subscribe to GQ and I'm not a guy. But anyway, I love GQ. Go ahead. Such a hard thing to answer um, because of the wholesale business being such a big part of the business that we don't go into our wholesalers and say, hey, how many people that you sold? Um, I would say that the designs are uh, unisex for sure. Um uh, you know, typically it's always been like, oftentimes I would say like we're for girls, we're like the boyfriend gene. Like the guy had like our best selling glasses, Hampton or Kinney. It's like the girl like takes them. is like, I love these, you know, but would never buy them. Like I, she would buy them, but I mean, she would want to buy what you bought first where it's like, I want the seasonal trend. Like everybody's wearing cat eyes, which we have, right. Yeah. Or everybody's wearing oversized, which we have, but then they realize that their boyfriend's classic Hampton, like all of her people's vintage kind of style is like, wow, this is great. You know, it's jeans and a white t-shirt and like a classic frame. It's totally good. So I think we're 50, 50. I think, my name, I think the fact that it's me, I think that the fact that most of the department stores we sell to only buy in men's um, makes us skew to look more like maybe 60% more of a men's brand. But I don't think the distribution of sales is 60-40. I think it's 50-50, to be honest. We definitely have a initiative next year to expand our collection size by doing you know more traditionally feminine designs and going with a new sales agency to target, you know, uh, Bloomingdale's women's cause we're in Bloomingdale's men's or, or we're not, we're not in Nordstrom's like maybe looking at working with them, but both men's and women's. Um, so we definitely want to try to increase our women's business next year, but it takes more seasonal kind of fashion frames to do so. Yes. I'm calling him out because you were mentioning a uh, frame styles, um, our podcast producer, Ben, where you're going to interrupt this business podcast to ask, <laughs> he was asking about a trend report, like what's up and coming in terms of shapes and trends and all the things. Yeah. I think people are really into medium tinted lenses right now. Um, so, you know, like, a can be a classic frame, but just like a light, pink girl light blue or a light yellow so sort of like an indoor tint yeah. uh, but still like uv protected and, and whatnot um thick fr thicker frames have been in for a while but that doesn't mean if i was speaking to a designer versus a customer you know that doesn't mean you should depart from your dna like we we've tried dabbled a little bit when the thick look was in because we're really popular for super thin um, frames when we came out that wasn't on the market. Um, and people don't ultimately, when it's too thick and doesn't look like us, people are less attracted to buying it. Like, so we kind of figured out what our place is in that, um, metal for sure. Like it's just been so heavy on the plastic for so long now. Um, I'm actually shocked that it's lasted this long. So I think, you know, interesting metals and titaniums, um, are, are, probably a year away. It also depends what market you're talking about because the U.S. sadly is always a few years behind, you know, France so and, and, and other places. So, you know, that metal thing is like already arrived in Europe, whereas U.S. is probably still a couple years away. Uh, okay. That thick acetate thing is kind of departed in Europe, whereas like it's definitely happening in the U.S. So, um, 
uh, yeah, people are still going for like really wild fashion frames that I would never wear too. You know, the Balenciaga, like crazy mask look and, um, you know, the, the people are still into that. So we're definitely still living in a very kind of loud, I guess, like nineties kind of thing. Yes. Well, would you say that you're, I don't know, susceptible to economic ups and downs? Like what, what did you experience during the pandemic? I would think that we talk a lot about the focus on self-care while people had a little more time and they were at home. I would think they would think, I'm going to get me some good glasses. But I don't know. What's been your experience the last couple of years in terms of economy, the economy effect? I mean, it definitely has an effect. You know, I think like, look, we launched in 2009, which was right after a big recession, um, the housing market crash, you know, and everybody was like, how did you do that? And it's like, I don't know. I'm starting to think that being new in a recession, like a lot of things come out of recession and, you know, a lot of new ideas. Um, I was 26, you know, so I didn't even, I didn't even have any awareness of risk. You know, it's just like, I, I need a job. Like I want to start my own company. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, so I think being new and launching a new idea in a recession is, um, I advise it. Like, I think it's a good time. You just have to think differently about what's not out there and what people would really want. Um, I don't think eyewear is like health and beauty. Like, I think that really took off in the recession because people were home, even men, myself, were like uh, skincare and I'll take a look at this type of thing. And people started doing their own mani petties at home and whatnot. So I, I know that that industry really quadruple whatever just grew. Um, I wear not the same, you know, sunglasses, people not going out as much, you know, maybe having a good reader at home, but I think, you know, I think not as much. So then for us, you know, we were at the time about 10, 11 years old. So it's certainly challenging, you know, I think. Uh, and and post-pandemic, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversation around new new and exciting brands. With that said, um, if there is a inflation and a recession, like our brand is really reliable. You know, we're an easy company to work with. Um, you, you don't have to, um, you know, if you're a wholesaler, you can buy – our best-selling frames and know that they're risk-free, that you will sell all of them eventually. You know that we usually have great inventory and in stock, um, you know, that we're priced a little bit lower, you know, things like of that nature. So, um, but yeah, certainly, I mean, I, I don't know any eyewear brand, to be honest, that went up in 2020. Like we definitely had to, uh, you know, we contracted and we had to kind of relook at our business. Now we're, de I'd say we're, we're, we're definitely out of the COVID, but now, you know, you've got definitely some macroeconomic issues and you just never know when they're gonna, when they're gonna rise. So you just try to keep it lean and mean and focus on what you do best and look to sell through channels that have your highest, uh, profit margin and, um, just be super smart about it. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I yeah, I wouldn't say it was a uh, for us or anyone in Iowa. I don't think there was a boom. Perhaps you know, save a few that were like new and exciting. Um, 
that seems to always be what the media wants to talk about, what uh, buyers want to talk about, because they want to go to a sh- they want to discover things, you know. So we try to give them reasons and new new reasons to discover us. But yeah, being fourteen years old now, um, you can never get that youth back. So uh, for any listeners that are entrepreneurial and young and want to start something, I mean, now's a great time. I wouldn't let anybody tell you that, you know, oh, it's a recession or a pandemic. It's usually probably a parent's point of view, Um, especially a parent that maybe isn't an entrepreneur, but you feel like you are. Um, It's a great time to do that now. Yeah, much better than uh, not not during that kind of thing. And I'm biased. Like I said, I launched in 2009 post-recession and I think we're in one now. So it's really great to do it during all that. This is fun advice. Tell me what happened when you were 26. Like this was, uh, did you take fundraising? Would you have investors? What's going on? Are you self-funded? Well, now we have investors, but um, I funded it myself. Um, You know, I mean, there's no hiding. Like obviously my family started all over people's, I mean, without getting into too much detail, my parents got a divorce. My mom fought for me to get a couple percentage points in the divorce when they sold in 2006. I got a couple shekels, and but not a ton. I bought a house and I started a business, and that was all. I spent it all. I let it. There probably was a time where my whole back was against the wall, like in, when I was 26 or 27. Like any good CPA would be like, "You, this is bad. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, the house maybe, but this business." But then. It just, you know, we were so, you know, full of youth and energy and such a great team. And it really was something was basically the same thing all of our people's. They had just sold to Luxottica and, um, you know, people were looking for something new and it was us. So uh, it didn't take long. Like we opened the store on Abikini. We never had a zero day ever to this day. Um the opposite. We were super busy all the time. So busy that I had to hire people and I started designing a collection based off the vintage frames that we were selling that like were no longer on the market. We knew we were going to run out of. And, um, yeah, I mean, we turned a profit very quickly, like year two. Um, and then within, let's say our first season selling frames was like 2000, late 2010 to really 2011. You know, by 2012, I wanted to open more stores. So I found like a angel investor who was like a Venice local who, you know, we did a small raise and that allowed us to open San Francisco and New York. And those stores were successful right away and pretty much ran the business that way and grew it exponentially for a decade until 2020 when, you know, things went backwards just because of the pandemic. And I got a little scared in terms of just, you know, having to fund any kind of significant, you know, cash flow issue myself. So I went and found strategic partners, didn't, didn't sell the company outright. Um, so now we have, you know, like a private equity investment and, um, uh, that's the kind of story, but, uh, I don't love to advertise all that too much, even though I just did. I just think sometimes that it's better. I don't know. Like it, you know, we're not corporate, you know, it's still me, Garrett light family run totally in charge. Um, you know, these are just real things that when you run a business that you come across that you, you need and everybody has their own story to tell with the funding side of, of it. Um, I'm terrible at fundraising. I don't, I don't like it. I'm a creative. I love my customers. I love, you know, designing and building communities and product. And, um, 
that's where I'm happiest for sure. Uh, but fundraising is part of it. You can't, you know, you gotta be smart about it. And, um, if you want to grow, you, you need capital. So, um, there's something about it that feels a little corporate that sometimes when a small little brand gets to it that the customers don't love, but like, this is the reality, you know? Yeah. Well, we have a lot of new founders, budding founders listening to this podcast all the time. I'm sure they appreciate the honesty about what it's really like and what you're going through. Um, gosh, we're running out of time, time, but I would say, um, you were talking about, tell me what's next. Uh, you mentioned other international markets and what's hot, like is international expansion a thing? And also, um, maybe category expansion, maybe when you were talking about keeping it fresh and interesting, give the press something to write about. I was thinking about collaborations and if that was a bit greater focus moving forward, but you tell me what's next. Yeah. So next year, not not next year, the year after is our 15-year anniversary. Um, so that's definitely exciting, and we're tracking towards some big things for our 15-year anniversary, but still, of course, have some great things planned for next year. Um, retail's been good to us, um, so we're going to open another retail store next year. So we're kind of just looking at you know, where that will be, North America for sure. Uh, we're kind of just looking at like our digital traffic and just kind of what communities speak to me and, and the team in terms of where we should be. So looking at like Chicago, Miami, potentially a few other places. Um, so another retail store for sure. Um, obviously the new website. So revisiting, we changed our digital marketing agency and really focusing in on our storytelling to kind of educate our new audience on our forever classics, but also educate the, you know, the customer that hasn't found us yet by, especially the women by, you know, opening more fashion doors with a bigger, broader collection of kind of seasonal trend women's frames. So that's, that's big as well. Um, I'm a, like I said, I'm a big wholesale guy. Like I really believe that the thousands of wholesalers that we work with is like our oak tree and we need to make sure to water that. That's the analogy I always use. And when we water the oak tree, I feel like that trickles down to all the other, you know, channels. So whether that's e-com or retail, um, I think that they do a great job of of educating a much bigger audience globally um, on who and what Garrett Light is. So I'm uh, just kind of bringing, you know, listening to our sales reps as to what the collection could use in order to kind of uh, keep those uh, partners of ours invigorated. Uh, looking at some expansion into Asia for sure. There's a different kind of fit. Uh, that you need like metal frames are better because they have nose pads it's kind of just called a global fit um, sometimes frames that are too small there just don't don't work because of the shape of the face so kind of looking at that and also finding like a sales leader there that has a lot of relationships that can kind of you know uh, open some doors in korea and china and all those places um so that as well um so the retail, I mean, re really all of it, retail, e-commerce, wholesale, we're never not trying to figure out how to sustain and grow each channel. Um, but really the collaboration question, I, we're, we have a few next year and super excited about them, but really trying to plan something big and celebrate our 15-year anniversary in 2025 um, with, uh, you know, just revisiting all of our classic frames throughout our history and introducing them in new ways and doing, you know, custom projects and products that are limited and have beautiful packaging and uh, things that are really collector's items. Um, we really want to make a big splash on that one. So next year is definitely like a setup year for, for 25 uh, continuing to grow each channel, but um, you know, 
planning for a big kind of 25, you know, marketing push. I mean, do it up. 15 years is no small thing this day and age. That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Garrett. This was truly enjoyable. I, I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Jill. It's good to, it was good to be here. That was fun. Yeah, it went by really fast. It did. Too fast. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to The Glossy Podcast. See you next week.